Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. morning of January 1, 2021. Uh, I was going to get the year started right. Uh, a good buddy of mine and I, we decided that we were going to do a, a Zoom call early, early in the morning, and we were going to talk through some scripture together. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to get the year off heading in the right direction. Well, I was downstairs in my basement because I was trying to be really quiet while other people were sleeping, and I realized that my wife had kind of moved some of the furniture around. Well, there was this hanging down light thing in our family room that suddenly was in a different place than it normally was, but I'm on this Zoom call, and I don't even remember why I stood up quickly, but I did, and my head went right into this light, and you can see exactly what happened to it. It shattered. So I'm sitting there on this Zoom call. I'm a little bit uh, disoriented, as you can imagine, and my head is throbbing. Well, I just put my hand on my head, trying to figure out what's going on. And then there's that sinking feeling when you start to feel the feeling of that warm blood running down your forehead. And I'm kind of looking at my buddy who's on the Zoom call, and he's just like, what in the world just happened to you? And as I'm trying to put pressure on it to stop the bleeding, I'm just like, you know, I I don't think this Zoom call is going to happen. And he's like, I totally understand. And he just kind of looked at me and he said, welcome to 2021. We're going to have trials in 2021. I can promise you that. We're going to step into our new series on the book of James, and he doesn't even get to verse two before he starts telling us trials are a part of this life. That's where we're headed as we start this new series. But first, before we get to verse two, I want us to focus a little bit on verse one, because I want you to understand a little bit of the background of the book of James. James one, verse one, this is the greeting from him. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So the author of the book identifies himself as James. There's lots of James in the Bible, but this particular James is the James that is the brother of Jesus. Let's just get our mind around that a little bit. His mom was Mary, his dad was Joseph. So that means his whole life, he shared a bathroom with Jesus. He got hand-me-downs from Jesus. You know what it's like when I'm the youngest of five siblings? You know what it's like to kind of live in the shadow of your older siblings? How would you like to live in the shadow of Jesus? He's your older brother. But you notice, James, as he introduces this letter, 
He doesn't say, to my older brother, Jesus. He says, to the Lord, Jesus Christ. That word, Lord, the Greek word that he uses is kurios. And this is why this is important. The Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures in the Greek, whenever they translated the most holy name of God, Yahweh, they would translate it kurios. So here's James saying, this isn't just my older brother. This is the Lord. This is God. This is James who spent his whole life watching the life and character of Jesus. If anybody had dirt on Jesus, it's family members, isn't it? We all know the stuff about our family members, but he came to the conclusion, Jesus is God. So this is not just a a little brother giving a little shout out to an older brother. This is a little brother that is bowing his knee to his older brother as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But you need to know this about James, I think. You need to understand James didn't always believe. Even though he grew up with Jesus, saw his life and character, he didn't always believe. And the gospel writers help us understand this in a couple different places. John says this in John 7, 5, referring to the brothers of Jesus. He says, for even his own brothers did not believe him. Maybe they liked him. Maybe they thought he's a pretty good guy, but they didn't believe this whole Messiah thing. Mark chapter three, we see a similar story. Then Jesus entered a house and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Jesus, the the, the crowds that were following were starting to get huge. When his family heard about this, here's what they did. They went to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind. It's like, our brother, we love him, but I feel like he's gone off the deep end. Let's go rescue him from himself. Let's go take care of him before he gets himself hurt. But then everything changed for James when he saw his brother resurrected from the dead. See, he, he grew up seeing the life of Jesus Witness the death of Jesus. But the game changer for James was seeing his brother resurrected. Here's how Paul describes it. There's lots of Paul's descriptions around these large groups of people that saw the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. But there's a special little note about James. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7. He says, then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. He appeared to James. That's what changed everything for James. I just want to give you a little forecast. We're starting this series today, and this series will conclude at Easter. Easter was a game changer for James, and it's a game changer for us. Because if Jesus really did raise from the dead, that has implications for us in our life and who he is and who he claimed to be. So at Easter... We're going to finish where it all started for James, the resurrection of Jesus, because that's when he first believed. But then James became a pillar of the early church. He was the main leader in Jerusalem and primary Jewish audience. And he wrote this letter that bears his name. And here's what I want you to understand a little bit about the style of this book of James. Oftentimes, there's two different things that a a biblical writer will talk about in in a letter in the New Testament. He'll talk about orthodoxy, 
And they'll talk about orthopraxy. Now, those sound like seminary-type words. In a little bit, they are. But orthodoxy is just simply right teaching, right thinking. Orthopraxy is right practice, right faith. But here's what James is saying. If we believe the things that are right, it has to live out in our life. Our faith has to work out in our day-to-day living. What's really important to James is not that we talk the talk, orthodoxy, but that we walk the walk, orthopraxy. Our faith needs to work. And so as we hold this letter up, over these next 12 weeks, and you hold your life up to it, I want you to be asking that question. Does my faith actually work? Does it make any difference what I believe in terms of how I live? Because here's what James would tell us over and over again. It can't just be something that lives in your head. It can't just be something that you think is true. It's got to move from your head to your heart. It's got to change your emotions. It's got to change your affections. But we would also say it can't just stop there. It's got to move from your head. It's got to go to your heart. But it's got to go to your hands. It's got to make a difference in how you live your life. Not only your life, but the lives of others. Our faith needs to work. That's the message of the book of James. And he talks a little bit about his audience. He said, those that are scattered throughout the nations. Here's what he's referring to. At the very beginning of the the book of Acts, when the church was launched, we see at the beginning of Acts chapter eight, the martyr of Stephen. And that's when the persecution started to get really, really big. And as the religious leaders and the Roman government was trying to stamp out this new way of following Jesus, it led to great persecution for the church. And after the stoning of Stephen, they scattered everywhere. And this letter that James is writing is to those primarily Jewish believers that are scattered around the world. But get this, what is so beautiful about that persecution is that it took this message of the resurrected Jesus, this gospel message of life change in Jesus to the world. But here's what's true about those people that were receiving this letter. Incredible persecution still existed. They were under incredible, incredible trials. And James, he understood trials. We have a history of the death of James. And I wanna share that with you. Because in the beginning, when this movement is growing in Jerusalem and James is at the center of it, the pillar, the leader, and as they're trying to squash this movement, the religious leaders at one point took James up to the top of the temple wall and demanded that he preach against Jesus, preach to the people not to follow the way of Jesus. Well, James goes up there, he has his audience, but you know what he preaches He preaches the good news of the kingdom of God that's found in his big brother, Jesus. They didn't stand for it. They took him and they threw him off of the temple. But when he landed, it didn't kill him. And suddenly the historians that were there looked and they saw he was beginning to pray for the people. You know what he prayed? He said, Father, 
forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Does that sound vaguely familiar to some of you? That sounds like a little brother who's looking at his big brother and the way he lived his life and the way that he walked through trials in life and he says, I'm gonna walk out trials in my life in that same way. This is a little brother looking up to his big brother. His walk matched his talk to his very final breath. And you know why that matters to me? If I'm gonna listen to someone talk to me about the trials that I'm going through, I wanna listen from someone that knows what they're talking about, that walked this out in their own life. James walked it out. Let's listen to what he has to say. He's gonna tell us right at the beginning of this book, if we're gonna live through trials the way God wants us to live through trials, there's three things that we've got to have. We've gotta have a promise, we've gotta have a perspective, and we've gotta have a person. First of all, God's promise. James 1, 2. James says this, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. There's a promise in there. It's probably not a promise that you want, but the promise is that trials are coming. And we see it because James uses the word whenever, not if ever, whenever meaning these are gonna be the regular, repeated experience of the life of someone that follows Jesus. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, there's gonna be all kinds of trials. There's gonna be little bitty trials in your life. There's gonna be great big trials in your life. There's gonna be trials that last just a little short time in your life. And there's gonna be trials in your life that go on for years and years and years. And they're going to come at you from all directions. And James just wants to tell us, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when that happens. And it's a very different message than we get today. And it's a very different message than even was around at the time of James, the pagan religions that existed at that time. Most of them went kind of like this. Like, we will do things for God, and then he will do things for us. If I scratch God's back, then he'll scratch my back. If I do all the right things, if I jump through all the religious hoops, then God is required to do for me what I want him to do. And that way we can avoid, we can do an end around, around trials. And you know, that that same kind of thinking has permeated the church as well in our day. There are people that stand on stages like this that say, God wants nothing more than your happiness. He just wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. And if something bad is happening in your life, there's something wrong with you. James would say, no, that is not the message. That is not the message that Jesus gave. Redemption, redemption in Jesus is not a means for us to avoid suffering, to do an end around of suffering. Redemption in Jesus is a means through suffering. James saw it in his own life, but he saw it in his brother as well. Here's what the writer of Hebrews, talking about Jesus, said in Hebrews chapter five about his life and his experience of suffering. It says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. 
and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Now listen to this. Son, though he was, he was the son of God. Second person of the Trinity. Son, though he was, he learned obedience. What? From what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey. Jesus, though he was a son, he didn't avoid suffering. He didn't do an end around with suffering. Jesus went through suffering and he learned through it. It grew him, it changed him in ways that only suffering and trials could. This is why we need to hear this. Because if that is good for Jesus, if that was helpful for Jesus, it's helpful for us. And here's what it doesn't mean. When we walk through trials, when we walk through suffering in our life, it doesn't mean that there's a lack of love from God for us. Because God, the Father, loved the Son. There was no doubt about that. When we walk through suffering, it's not a lack of faith necessarily on our part. There was never someone more faithful and full of faith than Jesus, yet he learned from what he suffered. Trials do not mean that it is God's punishment against us. Jesus did not need to be punished. He did nothing wrong, yet he still walked through suffering. It's part of this life. It is part of living in this broken world. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. But here's the question that James is going to answer for us. If we can expect trials, how do we get through them? How do we get through them? The second thing that we need is we need a perspective. Here's what James says. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, you know, you have a perspective that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. There's some, there's some words there that we, we, we just gotta talk about a little bit. Consider it pure joy in the midst of trials. What, what is James talking about here? Is he saying that when we're in the middle of the difficult things in our life, we're just supposed to be happy. We're just supposed to paint on a, a, a happy, smiley face, pretend like nothing's going on, fake it till you make it, enjoy it. Is that what James is talking about? No. You know, people that actually try to do that, you know what I call them? They're, they're crazy. They're crazy or they're masochists. Something is wrong because the trials of this life, the suffering of this life, they bring real pain. They bring real sorrow. And we feel those in very real ways. What James is saying, or what James isn't saying, let me say it that way. What James isn't saying is that trials and suffering are good in and of themselves. But that there's something that God wants to do in and through our life in the midst of suffering. That if we can gain a perspective, if we can look out far enough, we can be hopeful because God is at work in some way in our life. He wants us to be mature and complete, not lacking anything, James says. 
If someone asked me, do you want to have a mature, complete faith in Jesus? I mean, my hand would shoot up. Absolutely. Give me that. Do you want to have closeness, intimacy, depth in your relationship with Jesus? My hand would go up. I would say, absolutely, sign me up. But James would say, here's the path. The path is through trials. The path is persevering through trials. And he started out that verse with that word consider. He said, consider it pure joy. There's something that has to take place in our thinking, in our mindset, in our perspective. And friends, what I'm about to say is not easy. This is the hard work, the hard work of trying to understand how to handle trials in your life. That word consider, it, it, it sounds too soft to me. It's almost like I'll, I'll just kind of scratch my chin and maybe just think about a little bit. No, no, no. That word can be translated, count it, reckon it. It's gonna take work, it's gonna take courage, it's gonna be strength to rip your eyes off the difficulty of the circumstances that you're in and to place them on something else. It's not gonna be easy. This is the heavy lifting that James is talking about. And here's why this is so difficult. What's it like when you're going through trials? What's my perspective when I'm going through trials? I'll tell you, the last thing I'm thinking about is perspective outside. I think about me. I think about the pain of what's going on. And the pain becomes all-consuming. I can't think about others. I can hardly think about anything else. I just become utterly self-absorbed because of the immediacy of the pain. Suffering. When we're actually going through suffering, which we will, it has this capacity to just turn ourselves in on ourselves. But here's what James is saying. is like, don't do that. Consider. Consider meaning rip your eyes in a different direction. Do the hard work of looking at something else. Have a perspective. The perspective that God is doing something in your life. He's actually maturing you. That maybe there's an end out there as you persevere through this that God has in mind that you can't even see yet. Consider it pure joy. So here's what James says as we continue. He says, we can do that because you know. You know because you've got your eyes up. You've got a perspective. You know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that. So that, meaning this is the end result, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Jesus learned from what he suffered. James saw that, we know that. And here's what James would say to us. He would say, just like I'm a servant of my big brother, you are a servant of my big brother. And a servant is not above his master. If that's what Jesus walked through and following him means we walk in his footsteps in the way that he lived his life, we walk through those same things as well. Jesus has a goal for us. And it's not just that this life would be good, it's that we would become more like him. This idea of testing and trials that James is using here, the language that he uses has its roots in this idea of early metallurgy, smelting of metal. They understood that you can take a chunk of ore 
And a foundryman, they would know inside that ore is contained precious metals, valuable metals. But when you look at it from the outside, there's also just a lot of junk. And what a foundryman knows is if I want to get that precious metal out, I need to take this ore and I need to put it in some place really, really hot. And when I put that ore into a cauldron and I turn the heat up, I turn up the temperature, it starts to break it down. It starts to become undone. And what starts to happen is that junk stuff starts to float to the top. There's a picture of it right here. You can kind of, they call that slag. When that ore is heated up, the slag starts to rise to the top. And then what the foundryman does is he's got a scooper. Got a little picture here. It's a little grainy, but you get the idea. He's got a scooper and he starts to take that slag and he starts to throw it off. Throw it off. Throw it off. That's the picture of smelting. Let me ask you this. Does a foundryman do that to metal because he hates metal? Does he throw it in there because he's like, I'll teach you metal. I'll show you a thing or two metal. No. A foundryman loves metal and he sees the potential in the ore. And turning up the temperature, turning up the heat, turning up the trial and undoing that ore unlocks who it was made to be. You get the connection. God sees you as more than just ore. He sees precious metal in you that he wants to bring out. But if he's going to bring it out, it's going to mean that he's got to turn up the temperature because he wants us to get somewhere He wants to get to that place where when we stand before him, we look more like Jesus than we do today. That's his goal for us, making us more like Jesus. Is that your goal? Is that what you see as your goal in life, becoming more like Jesus? If it is, it means you're gonna go through the fire. You're gonna go through the trials. If your goal is something else, if your goal is to make this life the best that you possibly can, that I I get the right relationship, I get the right job, I have the, the right size bank account. If that's your goal in this life, it makes all the sense in the world why any of those things, when they're taken away, you're devastated. And life doesn't make sense. It feels so depressing. But God has a bigger goal than that for you. He's making you into the image of his son. And I love this picture of how a foundryman deals with metal as they continue to scoop that slag off. You know how they know when the metal has reached the purity that they want it to be is when they look down into the metal and they see their reflection in the metal. In the molten metal, they see their reflection. It's a great picture. When Jesus looks down at us, when he's spent a lifetime with us scooping slag off of our life, In the midst of trials, he looks down and he sees himself. That's his goal for us. That's where he wants us to go. That's where we're headed. But that's not how we live in this culture, is it? We don't live thinking about life in the big picture. We live in a secular culture. And secular, that word secular has its root meaning in the idea of being worldly, being temporal, being right now. That's what our world thinks. And quite honestly, that's what the church oftentimes thinks. 
This world is just about now. What can I get now? And if that's it, if that's true, then go get it. Do everything you can to get it. But James is trying to tell us there's a bigger picture. You've got to step back. You've got to step back and get a perspective. You've got to see a bigger picture. James would want us to know this life is short. It's a vapor here today, gone tomorrow. Eternity is long. So James is saying, live for eternity. Live for the things that are gonna matter forever. And he says, consider. Consider that perspective in the midst of trials if you're gonna make it through. And James talks about the kind of slag that comes up in our life. One of the ways he describes the slag in our life is he uses the word doubts. But I want us to understand what James is talking about when he says doubts. Here's what the scripture says, continuing in verse five. He says, if any one of you lacks wisdom, meaning lacks perspective, maybe we don't understand how we're seeing all of life. If any of you lacks that kind of wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously without finding fault and it will be given to you. Ask God for a bigger perspective. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is, hear this word, double-minded. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. I think sometimes when we hear that word doubt, when James is pushing back against doubt, we think that James is talking about uncertainty, some kind of a psychological uncertainty or a, or a disequilibrium or a disorientation, wondering, God, what is going on? Where are you? What is happening? That is not the kind of doubt that James is talking about here. Those things are very, very normal when we go through things that are difficult and trying in this life. But the doubt that James wants us to grab a hold of in our mind is that idea of being double-minded, having divided loyalties. It means I've kind of got a hold of something with this hand and I've got a hold of something else with this hand. My loyalties, my affections are divided. Kind of the picture that came to my mind when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about times that I go boating with friends. I don't have a boat, but I love going boating with friends. Any of you that want to take me boating and my family this summer, love to go with you. But there's those times that you're, you're boating and you're, the boat is coming up to the dock and sometimes we're in boats that I'm just like, oh gosh, this boat is worth more than my life. I don't want it to hit the dock. So I'm the guy up there that's gonna try to keep the boat from hitting the dock. And so I step from the boat onto the dock and I'm trying to hold the boat and it seems good for a while, but then all of a sudden everything just starts slipping and you get to this place where your loyalties are divided. This feels really awkward. It looks really awkward. But this is the picture that James is talking about. What am I loyal to? Am I loyal to the boat? Am I loyal to the dock? My loyalties are divided. That's the picture that James is talking about. We have loyalties sometimes to this world. We have some loyalties that are to God. But trials, when we go through them, it surfaces in us that we've got those. We've got loyalties to things in this life that aren't God. And trials show that to us. The last couple of weeks, last couple of weeks, Drew and I both talked a little bit about Matthew chapter seven, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. If you're, we just read that in the reading plan. If you haven't, if you're not on the reading plan, you can start. 
We were talking about Matthew chapter seven, this idea that we build our house on the rock or we build our house on the sand. And what reveals the reality of what our house is built on is the storms of life. Because if I were to just ask you, is your life built on the rock or is your life built on the sand? What would you say? What is the honest, what, you know what I think the honest answer is? Both. The reality is that your life is built on both. And it's when trials come in your life that you actually see the things that your life and your house is leaning on that aren't God. And so that's why these are so valuable in the mind of God and in the mind of James. Because when we see that we're leaning on something else, it's our opportunity to take our house and to move it more onto the rock until the next series of trials come in our life. And we get to do that again, but more of our life. And when I say the rock, what am I talking about? Is your life founded on God's unconditional love for you or is it founded on something else? Is your life founded on a belief deep in your heart that God has your best interest at heart, even in the midst of the storms of this life? Is he the anchor in your life? That's what it means to be built on the rock. I think our life can be built on both. And I see it in my own life. I would, you know, as I'm writing this sermon, I'm just like thinking, I wish that there was a shortcut. I wish that this wasn't the message of the Bible. Do you ever think that? Like, I wish there was a better way for us to grow and become like Jesus. But this is not only the word of God, but it's also my own experience. When I look at the things in my life that have caused me to be more dependent on God and to see my own sin and my own selfishness, it always comes through the hardest things in life. Walking through health crisis in our family, trying to figure those things out. Financial Things that we just like, how are we going to make things work financially? Relationship stress that just never seems like it ends in this world. And, and those are just things that sometimes are done to me. There's, there's my own failures. I mean, so many of the trials that I've walked through are self-inflicted. But it's those things that have caused me to grow the most, to make me the most dependent upon God. And you know what? I, I think it's true of you too. You know, people don't show up in my office and say, Bob, I, I am killing it in life right now. I am making so much money. I don't know what to do with all of it. But I just don't know where God is in all of that. It's never those things that cause us to wonder where God is at. It's when trials come that we start to ask the question, that we start to change our perspective. We need trials and we need perspective in the midst of trials. But the last thing we need is we need a person. We need a person that knows how to do this. We need someone that we can look at and say, they did this. They made it through this. They can help me get through this. James had that. You know who that was for him? big bro. It was his big brother. He saw it in him. But you know what James would tell us who it is for us? It's his big brother. It's the Lord, his big brother. Here's what the writer of Hebrews has to say about Jesus walking through this ahead of us and for us. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse one. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Consider, fix your eyes on something other than the things that you're walking through. Jesus is the pioneer. He's the one that went before. He's the perfecter. He's the one that has completed it. And now listen to this, the same words again, this idea of joy. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Just like in James, those, those two things just feel so, like they, they just don't go together. Joy and the cross. Was Jesus saying that the cross was joyful for him? The fact that he was gonna bear unspeakable physical pain but infinitely more than that, that he was gonna bear the wrath of Yahweh for the sin of the world. Was that joyful? No, it wasn't joyful. He wanted out. He said, Father, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, let's do that. But Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. What was the joy? If it wasn't the cross, what was the joy? He looked bigger. He looked longer. It was the big picture. What was the cross gonna accomplish? What was the joy that he saw? It was you. It was me. The reality that what he was gonna walk through, what he was gonna go through was gonna accomplish for us the ability to have a relationship with him that's gonna last forever. And he did it with joy. He didn't go around. He went through the trial. He's our pioneer. He's the one that we grab his hand. He is our person. He's not gonna show us how to get around trials, but he's gonna grab our hand and walk with us through it. And I just think I want us to be able to look at what he did and just say, Jesus, if you were willing to endure for me, for my sake, I am willing to endure for you. And when we're in the midst of trials, I mean, I, I just hear it all the time. People mad at God, complaining about God. He doesn't care. He doesn't understand. We can't say that. You can say anything you want about God, but you can't say he doesn't understand because Jesus walked through everything ahead of us. He did it for us. He cares. He understands because he walked it out and we grab his hand and he walks it out with us. Trials can do a lot of things in our life. And what James wants us to know is that if we can understand that we don't need to be confused about why we have trials, if we have the right perspective, that the trials that we walk through and persevering through them, they can actually make us better. They can make us more like Jesus. Or they can make us bitter and angry. And you've probably been at both places because I know I have and you've probably talked to people that have been in both places. But Jesus said, James says, that if we understand why we have trials, it's the pathway to getting better and not bitter. Let's pray. Jesus, 
Jesus, it feels a little counterintuitive to pray it, but I'm going to. Thank you for trials in our life. Thank you for how you can use those to shape us, to be more like you. Jesus, I just forgive me for all the efforts that I take in this life to try to do end arounds, to try to do it another way. Jesus, I just wanna grab your hand and I wanna walk with you. Thank you that when we look at you and we grab your hand, we know that we can have the right perspective because you've gone through it. And we wanna do it with you. Jesus, it's in your powerful and resurrected name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.